My name is Philip Benfey. I'm a professor at Duke University and an investigator with the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. This is the second part of a two-part series. In the first part, I described the use of genetics to look at root form, this, to identify genes that are involved in how you go from a stem cell to a differentiated cell in the root. In this one, I'm going to go more in depth into that pathway of going from the stem cell to a differentiated cell, and also talk about how roots function, how they spread out through soil. There are aspects of root development that greatly simplify the analysis. For example, if you look at the top of the root up here, and you make this slice through it, is what, what we're looking at there, you notice that the organization is a set of cylinders. There's an outer cylinder of what's called epidermis. Inside that is the cylinder of the cortex, then the endodermis, and inside that is the vascular tissue. If you rotate the root, it's about the same. So there's radial symmetry along this axis here. On the longitudinal axis, new cells are all made at the tip of the root in the stem cell population right here. And because cells don't move in relationship to each other, after the stem cell divides, that's going to make another cell, another cell, another cell from those divisions. And the cells then in place are going to differentiate as, you, <clears throat> as the root elongates, you, you get the cells differentiating. And what that means is that this longitudinal axis is a developmental time course. The youngest cells at the tip of the root, older and older cells as you go up the root. What this does is reduces the normal four-dimensional problem of development. Think of an animal embryo growing in the womb where one has to be concerned about the three spatial dimensions plus time, where here the three spatial dimensions are essentially reduced down to one dimension because of the radial symmetry and time is on the longitudinal axis. One can think about what's going along on in any one cell file as what's happening in the assembly line in a factory. And I use a mural by the Mexican artist Diego Rivera to illustrate the assembly line. So think of it as a set of parts that are happening in the stem cells. Those go into different assembly lines for the different cell layers. And at the end, you get a fully formed root by the combination of all those different assembly lines coming together. How you actually get the right cells in the right places comes from the division of the stem cells at the tip of the root. There are four different types of stem cells, and I want to focus your attention on this one here, this green one here, and it divides first along the, the transverse axis to regenerate itself. That's the lower cell. That's what all stem cells have to do. They have to regenerate themselves to maintain their ability to generate lots of different cells. And then the upper cell divides along the longitudinal axis to give the first two cells of the endodermis and cortex lineages. And it will do this over and over again. Each time it divides, it gets, makes another two cells, the inner one being the endodermis, the outer one being the cortex. Now, we performed a screen, a genetic screen, as I described in my first talk. 
And this screen, we were looking for something very simple. We were looking for mutants that had shorter roots as compared to the wild type. And here, you see that in a real section through a real root, the wild type, had, that's the cortex. The next layer in is the endodermis. And so there are these two layers, cortex outside, endodermis inside. In one of the mutants, the first mutant we found, which we named short root because we only thought of it as having a shorter root at the time, we saw that it actually has only a single layer between the outer layer of epidermis and the inner layer of vascular tissue. We then later found another plant. It also had a shorter root, but we were actually looking to see if it had a missing layer. We called this scarecrow after the character in The Wizard of Oz that's missing something. In the case of The Wizard of Oz, it's missing the brain. And we found that, again, there, there is only one layer between the outer layer of epidermis and the inner vascular tissue. And what we, <clears throat> when we characterized these mutants and asking what that remaining layer had become, we found that with short root, it had become the cortex. So short root was missing entirely the endodermis. Well, in Scarecrow, we found attributes of both cortex and endodermis. And our interpretation then is based on the great leap of faith of genetics, which is if you can define what's gone wrong in the mutant, that tells you what the normal gene, the one that's been mutated, does in its normal context, or what the wild-type gene does in the wild-type context. So in short root, we discovered there were two things that had gone wrong. It's missing the, the division that divides into endodermis and cortex, and it only makes cortex. So that says that short root, the short root protein, the normal short root protein, must be involved in doing both getting that division to occur as well as making endodermis, specifying endodermis. Well, in Scarecrow, because we found attributes of both cortex and endodermis in a cell, that strongly suggests that Scarecrow is mainly involved in getting that division to occur to separate cortex and endodermis. Now, after we characterize these mutants to, to figure out what the gene product should do, the next step was to identify the actual genes that have been mutated. We did this by looking for insertions into those genes that had disrupted them, and we identified the genes for both short root and scarecrow. It turned out that those, those gene products, the proteins they made, were actually very similar to each other. They came from the same class of transcription factors. This is a class of transcription factors that's specific to plants. Now, transcription factors are proteins that bind to DNA to the regulatory region of DNA, that is the part of DNA just upstream of where a protein is going to be made, and they control when and where that protein is made. So given where the short root protein is functioning, it has to make this division, and it has to specify endodermis, we naturally expected that it would be expressed in that cell just before the division and in the, the uh, endodermis after the division. While scarecrow, we expected it to be expressed at least in the cell where the division has to occur. So we then, to look at these genes, we used a number of different approaches. That is, to see where they're expressed, we fused 
They're promoter regions, that is the part of the DNA that causes them to be expressed in specific locations. We fuse that first to green fluorescent protein, GFP. And as you can see, GFP, as its name suggests, causes the cells to fluoresce green when a laser light is, is shown on them. And what we saw with uh, Scarecrow was that indeed it seems to be expressed exactly where we'd expect. That is expressed in that daughter cell that has to divide. It stays on in the endodermis after that division for reasons that we later worked on. But the surprise came with short root. Short root was not expressed in these cells that where, where it has to divide here. In, rather, it was expressed only in the internal tissues, the vascular tissue. And so what was going on here? Well, it was only when we looked at the protein of short root, <clears throat> and to do this, we used the same promoter, but this time it was driving the coding region of short root, that is, the part of the DNA that codes for the amino acids that will make the protein. We fused that to GFP, and what did we see? We saw now that it has a very different localization. So the RNA, as I said, was expressed in the vascular tissue, but the protein is expressed in the vascular tissue as well as in the cells where we'd expected. That is, this is the stem cell down here, and then it stays on in the endodermis after that division, exactly the cells where it has to specify their fates. Moreover, you see that its localization, those green balls-like things that you're seeing right here, those are the nuclei. Transcription factors act in the nuclei, which is where the DNA is. They have to bind to DNA. And that's, so it, uh, that all looks fine. Short root protein, we think, is moving from cell to cell through what are called plasmodesmata. These are, are channels that will allow, selectively allow, certain molecules like proteins to move. They don't allow all molecules to move, just very specific ones like the short root protein. Now, let me just recap what I've told you so far. That short root is expressed in the vascular tissue, it physically moves over into the endodermis. And then you might ask the question, why doesn't it continue moving past there? Is it because these ch channels only exist between the vascular tissue <coughs> and the endodermis? And the answer is no, the channels exist all the way out from, from the very inside all the way out to the outside. The reason it stops here is that that's where it interacts with scarecrow protein. Scarecrow protein is expressed, as I already mentioned, exactly where you'd expect it, in the endodermis. And it physically interacts. So the scarecrow protein and the short root protein form a complex. And that's what prevents the short root protein from moving further along all the way out to the outer layers of the root. And we can show this by this little animation. So short root moves over, physically interacts with scarecrow, we then showed that the short root and scarecrow protein bind to the DNA, so they bind to the promoter of the scarecrow gene. What does this cause? This causes a rapid increase of scarecrow. The more scarecrow that's made, the more comes over, binds with short root, binds to the promoter. This makes a positive feedback loop over and over and over again, making more and more scarecrow. We also discovered that short root can bind to scarecrow and bind to other genes, not just bind to the scarecrow gene, but bind to the promoters of other genes. And we hypothesized that among those other genes, <clears throat> we could hopefully find 
genes that are involved in getting that second asymmetric division to occur, the division that separates endodermis from cortex. To try to find those genes, uh, the way we did it was we used an inducible form of short root. Now, when I say inducible, what I mean is that in its normal form, that is without addition of the inducer, we see the short root phenotype. That's what you see here. This is the short root phenotype, but in this plant, we've introduced the short root gene fused to something called the glucocorticoid receptor. Now, what happens when that glucocorticoid receptor is attached to short root is that that keeps it from going into the nucleus. Again, this is a transcription factor. It acts in the nucleus. So this is keeping it out of the nucleus, keeping it inactive. When we add the inducer, in this case, dexamethasone, what we see is that we actually get a longer root and we get both the cell layers made, the inner one and the outer one made, <coughs> that because now short root is being allowed to go into the nucleus and act. And so what we did was then we looked over time. So we add the inducer and we looked at one hour, two hours, three hours, etc. What we found was that at about six hours, we start to see divisions occur. There are just a few divisions are occurring in this layer that hasn't been divided. So this whole layer here has not been divided. We add the inducer. Six hours later, we start to see divisions. By seven hours, we see lots and lots of divisions. So the, then we thought, well, if we could just look at that six to seven hour period, and if we could just find this cell layer, there are lots of other cells here that aren't doing anything that we're interested in at that point. We want to isolate just these yellow cells here. And the way we did that was to do the following. We um, dissociated the root using enzymes that break up the cell walls that are, that are attaching the cells to each other. The cells remain intact, but they're now individual cells. And then we pass those cells through a fluorescent activated cell sorter, a fax machine that allows us to get only the green cells. From those green cells, we make RNA. We use that RNA to hybridize. At this point, we were using microarrays, and that allowed us to see how much RNA there was for every cell in the, in the uh, plant and to see the levels of those RNAs. And so we did this at different time points, and we looked at one hour, three hours, six hours, 12 hours. And we were looking for, for genes that came up that became more expressed. In this case, yellow is more expressed, blue is less expressed, so that became more expressed just at the six hour period, and then perhaps went down afterwards. And we found genes that we expected, scarecrow, because again, short root turns on scarecrow to make that, feed, uh, that positive feedback loop. But a gene that was surprising <clears throat> was cyclin D6. Now, cyclins are part of the cell cycle machinery. There are lots of cells that are dividing in the root. And we thought, is there anything special about this particular cyclin? The first suggestion that there was something special about this particular cyclin D6 is that when we did an assay, which is called chromatin immunoprecipitation, that is, we looked to see if the transcription factor is actually attaching itself, is bound to the DNA. And when I say transcription factor, in this case, we were looking for short root and scarecrow and asking, were they bound to the DNA 
the regulatory region for cyclone D6. And so what you see here is that we're looking along the actual promoter of cyclone D6. And we find that indeed, short-winded scarecrow are bound to certain regions. These are each one of fragments of this promoter. So it's not bound to this part, but they are bound to these parts here. So this strongly suggested that short-root and scarecrow, these two important transcription factors for getting that division, bind directly to this particular cyclin to cause it to be activated. The second evidence that there was something very special about this cyclin, this D-type cyclin, is its expression pattern. When we fused its promoter to GFP, we found that it's expressed right in that cell just before the longitudinal division. Here you see in a, a transverse section, and we only see it in two of those cells. Those must be dividing just a little earlier than the other cells in that eight cell section. So what I've told you is that short root comes from the vascular tissue, physically moves to the next layer, interacts with scarecrow. That causes a positive feedback loop to be made. The more scarecrow that's made, the more is made. So this is an exponential increase in scarecrow. I also told you that short root and scarecrow together interact with a promoter of, of this D-type cyclin. This is a feed-forward loop making the cyclin, which then, as I've shown you, is critical to get that second asymmetric cell division to occur. There's another part of this network which was discovered by the laboratory of Ben Sheras, Alfredo Cruz Ramirez, and they found that there was a protein called retinoblastoma-related, RBR, which physically blocks the activity of scarecrow when it binds scarecrow. Now, this connects to our first network through cyclin D6, because this cyclin D6 actually, with its associated kinase, phosphorylates RBR when RBR is phosphorylated, when there's a phosphate molecule attached to this protein, then that prevents the binding to scarecrow. Well, if you look at this network here, it's hard to know when it starts and when it stops. If RBR is attached to scarecrow and that prevents the rest of this process, how does it ever get going? Or if cyclin D6 has phosphorylated RBR, then what's the role of RBR? So to understand this better, we use a set of ordinary differential equations to map out the activities of each one of these proteins and how they affect the other. And from that, this set of ordinary differential equations, if you let it run, suggests that there is something called bistability. So in this graph, see the lower level, this is scarecrow levels, and there's a lower level, and then there's an upper level. Suggesting that scarecrow is either off or on, and it rarely spends any time in between. And this is interpreted as a switch, that this whole network acts to either turn Scarecrow on or turn it off with nothing in between. And that should make that division as a single time and get that division to occur like a switch. So let me summarize what I've told you in this first part of the talk, which is that short root protein moves from one cell to the next, moves from the vascular tissue to the endodermis. Shortroot induces the expression of scarecrow. Together they turn on this D-type cyclin and this network of this whole process acts like an on-off switch to get a very specific division to occur
that patterns the root, gets the endodermis to be made on the inside, cortex to be made on the outside. Now, in this part of my talk, I want to describe how, you, how plants branch out, how they get their root systems to be made in specific locations, because branching out is what allows roots to actually explore their soil environment. Imagine if you just had a single taproot going down, you can only <clears throat> get the nutrients and water in that single location. However, most plants make roots that branch out and thus allow them to explore a much broader range of their soil environment. Now, branch roots are pretty amazing the way they're made. <clears throat> they're made actually in the layer that looks like the vascular tissue, but it actually has a special name. It's called the pericycle. It's the layer that's just inside the endodermis. So it actually goes epidermis, cortex, endodermis, pericycle. And when the pericycle gets the right signals, it starts to divide. And it divides and forms another layer, this, the second layer, then that divides again to give three layers, et cetera, et cetera, until you finally form inside the root. This is inside the growing root. You find, form all of the layers that you find in the normal tip of the root. Then in a second time, it actually forces its way out through the overlying endodermis and cortex. All of this has happened from the pericycle. The endodermis and cortex are still there. It forces its way out until it forms that new lateral root. Now, if you look along the, uh, the surface of a uh, Rhabdopsis root, it looks like these lateral roots, these branching roots, are almost equally spaced. And what, what we thought for a long time was that equal spacing was due to the fact that when a root started to be formed, that that then caused a set of signals to be produced. And those signals said, okay, no reason, to, I'm making a, a root coming out here. There's no reason to make another root above me or below me. So it had lateral inhibition. But work originally from Tom Beekman's lab and then later from our work, we showed that there may be another way of getting these roots to be positioned in the right locations. And what <clears throat> the Beekman lab had originally seen was evidence for an oscillating gene expression event near the tip of the root, not at the tip of the root, but more in the, the cells that are starting to elongate. And you see here <clears throat> that what, what we did was take a marker for that oscillation, fuse it to something called luciferase, so not green fluorescent protein, but luciferase, and the reason for using lucif luciferase is that it doesn't last any length of time. So you can see oscillations. So with green fluorescent protein, it just turns on and stays on because the protein lasts that long. So using luciferase, you can see that there is an oscillating event here in the root. Afterwards, it stays on. And in this 2D representation, you can see this oscillation. And then after the oscillation, it stays on. That oscillation is approximately every six hours. So it's not a circadian os oscillation. It's not every 24 hours. It's approximately every six hours. Again, it oscillates and then leaves behind. After that oscillation occurs, there is uh, still expression, and these expression points remain on. <clears throat> if you turn on the lights afterwards, this is all done in the dark so that we can see luciferase. If you turn on the lights afterwards, you see that at every one of these pre-branch sites, there's now a lateral root forming. So 
what we think of these as and what we call them are pre-branch sites. These are locations, a competence to form a lateral root, to form a branching root that has been set aside prior to the formation of these lateral roots. So if we change the growth rate of the root, for example, by placing it in a 24-hour light cycle as opposed to 16 hours light, 8 hours dark, if you look along it, it looks like there are a lot more pre-branch sites in a short period, a short space of the root. And in fact, for a given time period, we get almost exactly the same number of, of pre-branch sites at 24-hour light cycle or a 16-hour, 8-hour light cycle. Now, this could make sense because as roots are growing fast, quickly through soil, that will tend to mean that there are plenty of nutrients, plenty of water, and thus you can spread out your pre-branch sites, spread out your lateral roots. You need less exploration. However, if there's a reduction in the nutrients and the water going through compacted soil, you probably want to branch out much more in order to explore other parts of the soil where it may be uh, there may be more nutrients, etc. In that case, you want the pre-branch sites closer together. And so, what does this mean if you have approximately the same number of pre-branch sites per unit time? It means that in all likelihood, this is acting like a clock. It's a clock-like process that's counting time. It's not counting cell divisions. And then we ask, well, if it's a clock-like process, is there any way that we could disrupt this clock-like process and that could get us, at, get us to the underlying mechanism. And so one of the things we discovered was that if you block the synthesis of beta-carotene, beta-carotene is what um, makes carrots orange, for example. It's also important for human vision. That's why you were told to eat your carrots as a child. So we block the biosynthesis of, of beta-carotene with something called CPTA. We did that you notice there are very few pre-branch sites. You can count them and yeah, it's been dramatically dropped. However, if you block all of the, the beta-carotene production and everything that beta-carotene makes, the plants are very unhappy. And so, in collaboration with Tim Bug at the University of Warwick, he gave us an inhibitor, something that acts very specifically when beta-carotene is cut into smaller pieces and each of those pieces has a, has a different function. This D15 compound blocks a very specific cleavage. And we asked, well, what happens if we use that instead of blocking beta-carotene? And what we found was that now the plants look pretty happy. They're green, the roots are long, but in fact, they make very few pre-branch sites and, and very few <clears throat> um, lateral roots uh, afterwards. And so then we asked, what aspect of beta-carotene, again, it's a long molecule, gets cut up into a lot of different smaller molecules. And we asked, can we find the molecule that, was, that is important for getting these roots, the branch roots, the lateral roots to grow? To do that, what we did first did was titrate the D15 and found a concentration that allowed a certain amount of the roots to form, not all of them, but the idea that we could then add back compounds, these are different compounds that are, are made from beta-carotene in the plant. These are endogenous compounds. We asked if we blocked it by 50%, added back these compounds one at a time, can we find one that actually rescues this outgrowth of the lateral roots?
And of all of these, only one had that function. It's something called beta-cyclocitrol. Beta-cyclocitrol actually doesn't make more pre-branch sites, but it does allow those pre-branch sites that are made to grow out. And it, it was able to uh, do this by increasing the cell division rate at the tips of the root. Now, what we found was when we added it to rice, we saw two things. One is it made the roots grow longer, <coughs> more laterals, longer laterals, but it also made them look more compact. They seem tighter together in, in the, the beta, with the, treated with beta-cyclocitrol than they do in the control. And we wondered whether this could have a practical use. For example, in places where there's a lot of irrigation, where the water is drawn up from, the, from deep layers of the soil and then sprayed out on the top of soil, it's not uncommon that the top of the soil then gets to be salty, that, that the, what's been dissolved in the water in the base comes up, sprays out, and that produces a gradient of salinity so that there's a lot of salt at the top less salt as you go down. And we asked if we add beta-cyclocitrol, if this is allowing roots to grow faster and, and more compactly with uh, rice, whether that would help in growing in something like the saline soil. So in this case, we have a gradient of, of, of saline that it's at the top of the soil that these plants are growing in. We had 200 millimolar salt going down to zero. And when we put plants in under normal conditions, that is no beta-cyclocitrol, they are very unhappy. They don't make roots, they don't make shoots. However, if we supplement their watering with beta-cyclocitrol, we see that we can get a nice, healthy root made, and the aerial part of the plant looks pretty happy. This here you can see that the root depth is quite a bit greater, and the shoot height is also quite a bit greater. So, to summarize this part of my talk, what I've shown you is that there's a clock-like process that determines location of lateral roots along the primary root. This compound beta-cyclocitrol is involved in lateral root growth, getting them to grow outwards. And when added to rice, beta-cyclocitrol stimulates root growth when the plants are grown in saline, in a gradient of saline soil, probably because it allows it to grow through the soil where there's a lot of salt fast enough so it gets into the soil with less salt. Now, this is an image, a picture of my laboratory, people in my laboratory having a festive lunch, and that my funding sources for all this work. And um, again, I would note that there is a first part to this uh, series that talks about root genetics, the, the screens that we did for root genetics.